Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about what else, the midterm elections, and what they could mean for the legislative agenda in Washington. To help us pierce through the uh, partisan fog, we'll talk to two Capitol Hill veterans, Tom Kahn, who served on the Democratic staff of the House Budget Committee, and Pete Davis, who served on the Republican staff of the Senate Budget Committee. And our own Capitol Hill veterans, uh, Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson, will join the conversation. Well, the votes are still being counted, and at this point on Wednesday morning, it is impossible to say who's going to end up in control of either the House or the Senate. One thing we do know is that it was not a wave for Republicans or Democrats, although either side could still end up in control of both chambers. Another thing we know is that turnout was unusually high for a midterm. So what does all this mean for the legislative agenda on Capitol Hill, and can anything get done? Our first guest is Tom Kahn. Tom, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Great to be back. You know, uh, I guess we can only go through the scenarios. Uh, as we're recording this on Wednesday morning, we still can't say for certain who's going to be in charge of the Senate and who's going to be in charge of the House. So, you know, rather than speculate about the election results, um, why don't we talk about the consequences for the legislative agenda and uh, what the possible scenarios could be? And the first thing that, you know, comes to my mind is just doing the routine business of appropriation bills and raising the debt ceiling, which are two things that they are going to have to do in the coming year, no matter who's in charge. So, Tom, uh, as, a, as a veteran of the Budget Committee, um, what's your thinking on that? Well, it's a great question, Bob, and it really is, is a delight being back um, with Steve and, and you and Tori. Um, I think that um, the likelihood is that Republicans will take the House by a, a very narrow margin. The Senate is really in play. Um, assuming that the Republicans take control by, say, five or 10 seats, 15 seats even, it's going to be a replay of 2015, where um, when John Boehner just could not manage the House. Um, and um, the the most conservative wing of the Republican conference, five or 10 of them will really um, play the uh, kingmaker role. Um, that means I think it's going to be very chaotic um, because the price they will extract um, in order to vote for a debt ceiling increase or for an omnibus um, is going to be far too high for anything that Joe Biden or Democrats can vote for. It's also going to mean, by the way, to pass anything like a spending bill in the House, or for that matter, debt ceiling, they're going to need Democratic votes. Um, I, I see a, a real showdown. Uh, Republicans have indicated they want to uh, cut 
um, Social Security and Medicare, or at least control their their in- increased spending. And um, it's very hard for me to see a uh, Joe Biden sign that into law. So I, I see a very chaotic period ahead. Um, and it's not even clear Kevin McCarthy will be speaker um, if a margin is as small as it is. Just to, to, to drop back to the, uh, the first deadline that they're going to face is the government is only funded through December 16th. Right. So uh, and then one scenario is that we don't know who's going to control the Senate until December 6th, which uh, uh, could mean that could have some effect on the length of whatever sort of continuing resolution that they would uh, would would enact uh, before December 16th to fund spending, whether they're going to try to do it uh, for a couple of months or maybe do a longer CR, um, what, what uh, do you think? Yeah, they're- I think Republicans are going to have to make a fundamental choice because on the one hand, I think their inclination is uh, Democrats can pass a spending bill in the House with just Democratic votes. But of course, in the Senate, because of the filibuster, you need McConnell's support. So the question will, for them will be, do they want to do a continuing resolution to get them into the new year when they think they'll be in the majority so they can rewrite the bill and cut it on the one hand. And I think that that's very appealing to them ideologically. On the other hand, um, they may decide they just want to clear the deck and and they don't want to worry. They don't want to fight in 2023 over 2023 spending bills. They'd rather start clearing the deck and deal with 2024. So I think that's going to be a fundamental choice they're going to have to make. Another fundamental choice, and I want to bring Tori into this conversation, is about the debt limit. So let's let's go there. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, um, you know, there is a precise statutory debt limit. It's about thirty one point four trillion. We're not that far from it now. There are various estimates of when we will bump up against it, but probably sometime in the late winter, early spring, sometime in the first quarter of the year. Um, And then the Treasury Department can do what's called extraordinary measures where they just do some accounting maneuvers to avoid going over the debt ceiling. They're all perfectly legal uh, and it's routine practice. That gives them another few months. So it would get them maybe into the summer but at some point in the next year, they're going to have to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. And there's already a lot of conversation in Washington about how that w- could be done. Now, we still have lots of scenarios about who's going to be in charge of the House and the Senate, but it's not going to be easy to raise the, the debt ceiling. Um, Tom, you and I were talking a little bit uh, before about the possibility of the Democrats, while they're still in charge, uh, let's let's say they may you know lose control of the, the house, for example, uh, passing a reconciliation, a quick reconciliation bill, yeah. uh, which they could do before they go out of session, and they can use a reconciliation bill, which of course can go through the Senate without a filibuster, uh, to pass a debt ceiling increase. That's one of the specific things you can use a reconciliation bill for. I know from talking to my colleague Tory, who. You're on the budget committee on the House side and both both on the Senate side. Started on the House budget committee, ended up on the Senate budget committee. So. So anyway, um, 
has some skepticism about the practicality of it. So let's talk about just right now, is it a practical solution? A, is it possible, B, is it practical to do a reconciliation bill while the Democrats still have control of both houses to raise the debt ceiling? Well, I I have talked to um, um, the top senior staff, both on the House and Senate Budget Committee majority, and uh, this is very, very much under discussion and consideration right now. Um, it, the challenge, on, on the one hand, um, the challenge is they will have to pass first a budget resolution for fiscal year 2023, which they have not yet done. Um, and it could be a skeleton budget resolution, but they, that takes you know up to 50 hours and you've got Votorama to deal with. Um, uh, and then you'd have to do a reconciliation bill. And that's uh, 20 or 30 hours on the Senate floor. Um, and so it would be very time consuming. Um, and there's not a lot of time and, and sure we will want to do a lot of things during lame duck. On the other hand, um, there's high anxiety about two things. Number one, that uh, if Republicans are in charge of the House and or the Senate, that it will be inordinately difficult to pass a debt ceiling increase. And I think we all remember what happened um, in 2011, 2013, where we came so very, very, very close until the last minute. Um, and secondly, um, the price that they will demand in return for passing a debt ceiling increase, which is uh, cuts in Social Security or Medicare, are, are not ones that um, that President Biden can sign. So in order to avoid that, um, there's a lot of pressure in order to do a budget resolution and reconciliation. Um, what I understand, again, is or what I was told is that uh, you need 50 Democrats to vote for it. And Senator Manchin is not enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I think it's wise for Democrats to be thinking about it. I just think the logistical hurdles are 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 too too many and too big. And ultimately, at the end of the day, let's assume that they could line up all the different, you know, all you know, line up all the different logistics. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I think Democrats would have to choose between passing a debt limit bill via reconciliation and finishing the fiscal 2023 appropriations. Because if Republicans in the Senate got wind that Democrats were trying to pass an increase in the debt limit via reconciliation, I think there would be zero cooperation on an end of year omnibus. They'd just punt everything until next year uh, when they'd have a chance to write some of those bills. While I think it, it would be a, a neat idea, um, it would definitely save the, the the domestic economy, which is already reeling from inflation, from another blow, <laughs> uh, another crisis, a manufactured crisis, one that's completely avoidable. Uh, but I just, I don't think uh, we're going to get there. Just too many, too many hurdles. And you know, one of the things about doing a debt limit increase via reconciliation, uh, you, you actually have to put a number in the bill, right? In the reconciliation bill, we're increasing the debt limit by X amount. Um, Demo Democrats couldn't find the votes to do that last summer uh, when they were doing their reconciliation bill on Build Back Better. Um, they're certainly not going to be able to have, find the votes uh, for it now when that number is only just going to be much, much, much larger. Steve, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You don't have to talk about the debt limit. Uh, <laughs> we'll be talking about that for quite some time, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Any uh, questions that come to mind? Well, just, I mean, you know, uh, Tom mentioned that we hadn't done a budget resolution this year. I mean, back, back in the good old days, <laughs> when, when we actually used to pass a budget resolution every year, um, I guess I want to get your perspective on 
is, is the budget process dead? And if so, is there anything we can do about it? C- could it or should it be resurrected just in terms of passing a budget resolution every year and using that as a framework for appropriations and reconciliation? We, we haven't seen regular order in quite some time. I think that we will see budget resolutions uh, in all likelihood only when you have um, the House and the Senate under control of, of the same party. Um, and it will be used as it was used um, by Democrats and, and also by Donald Trump and Republicans in order to avoid the filibuster in the Senate. Um, um, the budget process is is in dire straits right now. And um, um, the problem, of course, is that that we have so much partisanship and polarization. There's no collaboration. There's no cooperation. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember the old days in the budget committee when 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 Republicans would actually vote for a Democratic budget resolution. I remember when Leon Panetta was the chair and people like Chris Shays actually voted for it. Um, but those days are, are long gone. And um, now at this point, the budget resolution is really a vehicle to, to get around uh, the filibuster. Tom, I'm wondering, it, it, it does raise this question in my mind about the closeness. So whoever wins, it's going to be razor thin on either side. Does that, let's say there's a split between the House and the Senate and, you know, really razor thin. Does that encourage the two parties to work together? Does it empower the centrist or does it make it just <laughs> ensure gridlock? I'm, I, I'm, I'm it's sure. so funny you ask because I had that on my next question is, are we looking at gridlock <laughs> or are we looking at bipartisanship? Tom, what do you think? Um, it's a great question. And um, I always want to be an optimist. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you look at sort of history, um, uh, it was an opportunity for um, for a bipartisanship. You know, I, I, I got started in 97 when Bill Clinton was president. Newt Gingrich was the speaker and we passed a six year uh, deal that actually balanced the budget, which is quite mind boggling right now. Um, I worry, though, that the two parties are so divided and so polarized that it will be very difficult to to get anything in the center done. Um, I, I don't want to rule it out. I would just say this, that, you know, Joe Biden actually um, has shown in the past um, a seriousness sometimes. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this um, about uh, about the deficit. Um, and um, um, and, you know, I think we all agree, people who are concerned about about the fiscal future that um, entitlements need to be on the table along with revenue. The problem is, I think for any serious deal, um, there is no way that Republicans are going to vote for anything with a revenue increase in it. And without a revenue increase in it, it's going to be almost impossible for Democrats to vote for anything like a change CPI or um, um, even slightly raising the the age of eligibility for Social Security or, or Medicare, Social Security in particular. I, I think it's going to be very difficult, but you know, never say never. Um, uh, you know, going back to the question you asked at the beginning, um, Bob, uh, I think it's going to be very hard for Kevin McCarthy or whoever is speaker to govern the House of Representatives with a five or ten seat margin. And so I, I see chaos, frankly, or I fear mm-hmm. chaos. I mm-hmm. 
no, I, 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 there's a lot of truth in what, what Tom is saying. And, and you think about what I see happening is, is, you know, that you talk about the calcification of our, of our politics. And I see, you know, everybody going to their, to their respective corners and getting nothing done until they realize we really need to get something done or, you know, because we can't, for example, we can't operate a full year on a continuing resolution. The Depart- Department of Defense just won't abide by it. Right. Um, so it, there will be some action forcing events like the need to fund the government that, you know, after everybody goes to their their corners and says, no, 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 no. Frankly, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden, the adults in the room are going to get together and say, this is what we need to do. And they're going to roll the house and enrolling the house. Does that mean the new speaker, whoever that is, whether it's McCarthy or somebody else, you know, loses their gavel uh, because, you know, House Republicans eat their own. Um, and we have, you know, another churn in in the speaker, just like we saw under, uh, you know, Boehner and Ryan. Um, and that sort of process uh, repeats itself all over again. So that's that's sort of where I see things going. It's just gridlock, gridlock, gridlock until they absolutely have to do something. And then Senate with Biden rolls the house and then does that affect some sort of leadership change in the house? I completely agree with that. I think that's very astute analysis and ultimately whatever deal there is in terms of the house is going to require a coalition of house uh, Democrats and Republicans, because at the end of the day, you know, as Tori is saying, we're going to have to pass spending bills and we're going to have to do a debt ceiling. And that's only going to be able to be done with Democrats and Republicans voting for it. Because there's a wing of the Republican Party that will never vote for a debt ceiling increase. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if if they could arrange something, and McConnell is good at this sort of thing, of giving, in effect, everybody what they want. So the president can submit a budget, uh, a debt limit increase. Congress can vote it down. But it goes. But it's like a, a resolution of uh, disapproval or something. They had something like this a few years back where Obama, yeah. Obama was able to submit a debt limit increase. Republicans were able to vote against it and then he could veto that. And so, every, you know, they could vote, have their vote against it and the debt ceiling would go up. And it seems to me that that might be a, a good way to try to engineer a result. Well, and it's and I'm really hoping that what they do is they move towards a debt limit suspension rather than an increase in the debt limit, just because that gives that 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 finality. We know when we when we need to act. So that that would be now, my- when I was describing that Steve had a really curious look on his face. So I didn't know whether <laughs> you had some, was that born of cynicism of, <laughs> or just they'll never do anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was just uh just thinking, thinking about, you know, having watched this debate all these years, I mean, we just, it's like Charlie Brown and the football, you know, we just keep thinking, you know, this, this, you know, debt ceiling death trap that both parties alternate going, you know, back and forth. Okay. You know, when, when you're in the majority, you have to vote for it. And when you're in the minority, you just feel compelled to vote against it. And it just is a psych endless cycle. Both parties just go around and around and, it's like, you know, there's there's nobody that'll call an end to the the the, the charade. But, you know, I, I don't know what you do. It's it's, it's yeah. really discouraging. Yeah. There's a lot of hypocrisy on, on both sides about that. When you're in the majority, you say, well, the responsible thing is we should all vote for the debt ceiling. And then when you switch into the minority, you uh, you vote against it. You, know, you try to extract promises or not promises, but but concessions in order to, to mm-hmm. vote for it. But now we have divided government. And so, you know, who's responsible and who's in charge? Um, 
It's, it's, well, the thing about it that I, you know, if if you're so dysfunctional that you can't pass appropriations bills, the government shuts down. And that's a bad thing. And it's dysfunctional. If you actually even accidentally trip over the debt ceiling and having to start default, that's that's a national that's that, that is like putting a gun to your head. I mean, it is a uh, uh totally irresponsible thing for the federal government to start defaulting on its obligations. Uh, and that that worries me a great deal. And I'm not sure people always draw the distinction of why the debt ceiling is, uh, you know, not just any political card that you play in a poker game. Yeah, I would say I, I agree with that. I would say it's not only just a national crisis, but an international crisis. I mean, the impact on the, on the financial markets would be just absolutely devastating. It, it would lead to a vast. Uh, people think that interest rates are too high now. Just wait till you hit the debt ceiling and and you and you exceed it. Um, and the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. I mean, I remember when I was at the Budget Committee and and we came very close within days of of hitting the debt ceiling. Um, and I was getting calls from people in the military saying, am I going to get my check? And seniors saying, you know, am I going to get my social security on time? Um, it, it, the consequences are just absolutely mind boggling. Um, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, and it is kind of a mind boggling day. <laughs> we haven't really filled our listeners with a lot of cheer this morning, <laughs> though I'm not sure that we ever do. Uh, Tom, as always, it is great to have you. you. Uh, I, love, I love being on. And I just want to give a plug for the Concord Coalition. I mean, the work that you do is just in the in, in your voice is just such uh, so refreshing and so important. And frankly, not heard enough on in 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 the in the in the, the, the rooms of power. And so, bravo to the Concord Coalition and Bob to you in particular. Well, we always have time for that message. Excuse me, Tom, your checks in the mail. <laughs> You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been discussing the midterm elections and the potential effect on the congressional agenda with Tom Kahn, a professor at American University, former uh, staff director on the House Budget Committee. Uh, Tom, thank you very much. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the midterm elections and their potential effect on the congressional legislative agenda. In this segment, we'll bring in Pete Davis. He's president of Davis Capital Investment Ideas and a former top congressional staffer. During his 11 years on Capitol Hill, Pete worked in the House and the Senate and for both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, he was an economist with the Joint Committee on Taxation, worked on the Senate Budget Committee staff and the Senate Appropriations staff, and even worked as a uh, temporary staffer on the uh, pro tem staff under uh, Robert Byrd. So, Pete, um, welcome back to Facing the Future. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bob. Uh, so as we're recording this on uh, Wednesday morning, we don't know yet who's going to be in control of the House or the Senate. Looks like maybe the House went to the Republicans. Uh, but, um, you know, what does this mean, as best you can tell, for the Capitol Hill agenda? I mean, suppose the Republicans did take the House. And then we won't maybe know until December whether who who's in control of the Senate because there may be a Georgia runoff. Um, 
how do you see this affecting some things that Congress the, the, the Congress that Congress needs to get done, no matter who's in charge? Well, uh, the first thing they need to do is to extend the funding for the government, which expires at midnight on December sixteenth. Uh, there's a long list of tax extenders of roughly forty that uh, you know every every time a uh, lame duck session of Congress occurs, they they have to. Uh, uh, deal with expiring tax provisions. Uh, big business cares a lot about the R and D expensing and bonus depreciation. We've, you know, there'd be a big push by liberal Democrats to try and get uh, the, the expanded child care credit. And then, uh, you know, there's some important uh, Medicare provisions that need to happen. And also, uh, uh, there's a, a sequester, uh, a big hit to Medicare that will probably be undone. So they've got quite an agenda to get done uh, starting next week for a week before Thanksgiving and then back in December for as long as it takes before they get everything done. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge unappreciated uh, uh, burden that they have there because a lot of us focus on the appropriation bills that have to get passed at some point to avoid a shutdown on December 16th. But you laid out some really big issues on the tax and spending side, uh, expiring provisions that if nothing happens, you're going to get uh, taxes going up or some some tax breaks that people count on going away. And you're going to get uh, some big cuts to Medicare that nobody really expects to go into effect, but they would if they have gridlock. They'll probably get it done. And by the way, there's another big one. Uh, the debt limit won't hit until the third quarter of next year. But uh, assuming uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy from California becomes a speaker and has uh, maybe a 10 seat majority in the House, there are 60 members of his caucus. Absolutely no way will vote for a debt limit. And so I'm, I'm, I'm watching to see if maybe he looks the other way and they, they extend the debt limit uh, in December. Well, I'm going to bring in Tori. Uh, let me ask one of my uh, one of the one of the things that you see some speculation about is whether the Democrats would try to do a rush reconciliation bill, which would involve mm -hmm. passing a new budget resolution and raising the debt limit before they you know say they lost uh, one chamber to try to get it done in December. Uh, and I'll uh, bring in Tori on that too. But Pete, do you think that that's at all a possibility? I don't think they have the votes to, you know, they, they'd have to have 60 in the Senate to get reconciliation going again. Actually, Tori, don't do they have a leftover reconciliation from the last? They'd have vote? to pass another budget resolution for 2023. So, I mean, they've got the vehicle to do it. It's just the calendar's not in, in, in you know, is not a favor to them, is not a, a benefit to them. But I, I do wonder, though, you raise an interesting point, Pete. You know, if, if the House majority next year is going to be so narrow, uh, whether McCarthy, you know, sort of looks forward, reads the tea leaves and says, hmm, you know, if we're going to do a big omnibus at the end of this year, let's sneak in there a suspension in the debt limit so that we don't have to address this next year. Instead of doing the reconciliation route, you know, maybe if in exchange for some movement on some of the tax extenders that you were mentioning, Democrats can squeeze in a suspension in the debt limit. It's, you know, it would be the, like the most responsible thing to do, which means, of course, they won't do it. <laughs> it's going to be tough. Steve, you want to uh, jump in here? 
So Pete, you've you've worked on tax issues often often on over the years, and you know we we go through this annual ritual of tax extenders. Um, I mean, is that is that become sort of an inevitable part of the process that you just you can never make any of these things permanent, and so you just have to keep doing them over and over and over again? Or you know, the cynical view would be that well, the reason they keep doing them over and over again is that they use them to to do other things, and obviously, you know. The real cynical position is that they, they keep these things hanging out there because it's good for uh, the, the politicians. It raises money. <laughs> it's fundraising. All of the industries and all the lobbyists to say, OK, well, you know, this this tax provision thing that you really, really like, it's going to expire. So, uh, you know, you, you need to pay attention. And so it, it just creates this sort of endless cycle that uh, as, as a matter of politics, they just simply can't can't get by. Steve, you're right on. Tori, you're right on. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that most Americans don't see is what I call the sewer of campaign finance. <laughs> and, you know, if these things were permanent, there wouldn't be as many fundraisers down at the Hyatt on Senate side or over at the, you know, Republican headquarters on the House side and, and, and the Democratic headquarters. And so uh, Tori's exactly right. I mean, you know, the lobbyists know these things are going to be extended. Congress knows they're going to be extended. They should be permanent. That would be good policy, but that would shut off the flow of campaign funds. And so that's unacceptable. Look, when I worked for uh, Senator Domenici on the Budget Committee back in the 80s, I used to get calls early in the year uh, from lobbyists saying, hey, Pete, you know, uh, How's it looking on X, you know, whatever incentive that was their main bread and butter? And they'd be angling and I would immediately reassure them, uh, don't worry, it'll be on my hit list. And and then they could go to all their you know companies that supported them and say, oh, my God, Davis is after this. <laughs> 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 and so I got to play the bad guy. And. When I went into the back room at finance, you know, where you've been many times, Steve, and, and presented my list to the members, uh, the first thing they did was reject every single thing that was on my list. That sounds familiar. So you, you played a useful role for industry by being the bad guy. <laughs> well, hey, somebody's got to do it. So I'm curious about, you know, one of the euphemisms is, is that, you know, that the presidential campaign for 2024 starts today, right? The day after the, the midterms. But we don't know who we pretty much I think we know who's got the House. We don't know who's got the Senate, but people are already going to start campaigning for, for president. Um, we also know that a good chunk of the Trump tax cuts that were passed um, earlier expire right after the next presidential election, um, which means you've got you know, president uh, can, uh, candidates for president who are going to be falling all over themselves, uh, making some promises about the direction of, of those tax cuts. Um, but we're also in a scenario where we've got some action of enforcing events on the spending side with respect to, to Medicare and Social Security, and that we really need more revenue in the federal budget. If, if people don't want to you know, make dramatic cuts to Social Security and Medicare, we need more revenue. So I'm curious if you can sort of look into your crystal ball, Pete, look at, uh, ahead at sort of the status of revenues and where you think the direction of the expiring uh, Trump tax cuts are going to go relative to 
the the need the, you know the 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 need for what would I say you know we need a bigger boat the need for more revenues where where you know you squeeze on a balloon which way is it going to pop out? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the four of us on this call are among you know the 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 few maybe dozen or two dozen people left in Washington who care about reducing the deficit. <laughs> um, well, if you're worried about inflation and you know trillions of dollars in debt, there's a connection there. <laughs> hey, Larry Summers was in the White House uh, last fall, a year ago, telling him about inflation. And what did they do? They uh-huh. threw a trillion and a half dollars of gasoline onto the fire. You know, uh-huh. uh, with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and and. And by the way, you know, at the end of 2025, I don't see any way, no matter what happens to the leadership of this country, that those tax cuts are, are going to be allowed to uh, expire. You know, they're, they're just they're going to have to continue a good chunk of them. You know, if the Democrats control everything, they'll try and tax the rich. But guess what? They're not that many rich. And you don't raise that much money. And they couldn't do it last summer. So why are they going to be able to do it, you know, in two summers away from now? There so, you go. so if we're going to extend the the, the Trump tax cuts, um, where else are we going to find new revenue? I mean, do you see uh, a pathway for a bipartisan agreement on a VAT or a carbon tax or where the heck are we going to find new revenue? Well, I staffed Al Loman, the chairman of the Ways Means Committee, on his VAT and tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> and, you know, people say he lost his election because of that. And I don't really believe that. I think Jimmy Carter threw in the towel too early before voters in Oregon turned around and went home. But anyways, it didn't help him. Uh, I, I formulated two carbon taxes for Bob Dole uh, back in 79 and 80 which never saw the light of day. I kid people that they're still in a file cabinet in the Watergate. And, you know, the political (laughs) will is just not there to raise taxes. So what did we do when Social Security was almost going to run aground? I mean, in early 83, we were a few months away. You know, checks, Mm -hmm. Social Security checks were going to go out with 80 cents on the dollar in May. Mm -hmm. And and here we were in like February saying, oh, you know, let's let's think about it. And and we got onto the floor and at the last second uh, we had a, a deal, uh, Pat Moynihan, Bob Dole, and they raised the payroll tax. They raised the retirement age. They put in a few tighteners on benefits. And and that's what we've lived with ever since 1983. And, you know, you know, right now, uh, the trustees say that Social Security will go bust in 2034. We're going to be running deficits over a trillion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Public debt is public debt is hovering at 100 percent of GDP. The last time that happened was after World War II in 46. Mm-hmm. So guess what? No matter what happens with elections, they're going to uh, wait until the last minute and sort of cobble together something like we did in 83. We're going to have to take a break at this point. Uh, Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are talking with Pete Davis, a Capitol Hill veteran and president of Davis Capital Investment Ideas. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Pete Davis, a former Capitol Hill staffer 
who is now president of Davis Capital Investments. And uh, we're talking about the midterm elections and their possible effect on the congressional agenda. Tori, I believe you have a question about appropriations. We've got a potential statutory paygo sequester. We, you know, we spent so much on on reconciliation bills that we actually ended up with a, a positive balance on your statutory paygo scorecard, which means if Congress doesn't do anything about it, they're going to have to whack uh, a big bunch of money out of mandatory spending. A lot of it comes from 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 Medicare. So I guess the question I had to, to Pete is, is uh, do you see them uh, doing something about that at the end of this year? What does Congress always do when they face uh, a gun to their head? <laughs> you know, like it's like be on the, the diet and the, and, the, and the refrigerator is locked. You know, they're going to open the lock. You know, mm-hmm. They're going to they're going to waive the sequester. And by the way, the scorecard is like two or three times the allowable amount that they can cut Medicare because there's a 4% cap on how much they can cut Medicare. If they if they allowed a cut to Medicare, it wouldn't matter what party you're in. You would be defeated mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, if you allowed that to happen. They're going to waive it somehow. So it sounds like there's going to be some action forcing events that 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 suggest, hey, we're not just going to punt the, the CR to next year. You know, excuse me, I'm talking in code here. Um, you know, there's been some conversation about whether if Republicans take the House, they'll insist on on uh, pushing appropriations, the, the final appropriations bill to next year. But with this statutory paygo sequester, it, it means they've got to do some homework this year anyway. So why not just get everything else off the table? Well, the first thing to know is that the current funding for the government uh, or most of the government expires at midnight on December 16th. And we'll know what the strategy is, depending on how much the next continuing resolution, how far it goes into next year. You know, my guess is, I don't know, mid-February, maybe early March. And you're right. You know, the House Republicans are going to write appropriations in ways that they want with like more defense spending, but maybe a little haircut on aid to Ukraine. Uh, they will uh, uh, whack uh, favorite democratic programs. And guess what? The president will veto it. And and then we'll be, and they don't have, you know, there's no way uh, there's going to be an override of a presidential veto. So we're probably going to be on continuing resolutions for the next couple of years. That uh, almost sounds like a drug. <laughs> I'll be taking CR here for a while. Um, it's just a terrible to, way to govern. Yeah, just to reiterate, the the fiscal year begins on October first, and they're supposed to have the appropriations bills for the for the uh, following year passed by that time. And when they don't, they have to, in order to avoid shutting down the government, pass these so-called continuing resolutions or CRs. The most recent continuing resolution goes through, as Pete said, December 16th. And what they still have to figure out is for the current fiscal year, when the heck are they going to uh, enact uh, full year appropriations or just do a full year, quote unquote, CR, which basically freezes spending at the level that it was. And as Pete said, that's a sort of a terrible way to uh, do government because the agencies don't know what they have to spend and the Pentagon gets really ticked off about it. Well, I'll um, give you an example. A friend of mine ran a major 
research program at NIH. And the last time we went through that, she had to cancel an annual conference where all the world's researchers come together. And it set back uh, a good chunk of NIH uh, medical research a year. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a matter of political posturing that has uh, very bad effects on actual governing. So, uh, Steve, you had a, a question, I think, about uh, all this in the student loan forgiveness initiative. Well, yeah. So, you know, the, the president has proposed through a series of executive actions, regulation changes to forgive uh, student loan debt up to 20000 per student, uh, in some cases, ten to 20000 and also to, to redesign a number of, of the uh, what they call income-related repayment plans. And there have been estimates from the Congressional Budget Office and other entities that, that the, the cumulative effect of, of these uh, changes to the student loan program could cost as much as a trillion dollars. Now, some people argue that the, uh, the Constitution gives Congress the power of the purse in terms of who, who gets to, to, to decide you know, when money is spent and how much is spent. And it would appear to some that what the president has proposed uh, to perhaps circumvents uh, the, the, the Congress in, in, in spending this much money. I mean, you know, whether you agree or disagree with the student loan changes, uh, can you make an argument that maybe that those decisions should have been left to Congress and that the president maybe doesn't have the authority to, to, to spend that kind of money on his own without congressional approval? No, you're exactly right, Steve. I mean, I, I, I just... I'm just amazed that nobody seems to read the Constitution anymore. <laughs> you know, the founding fathers put uh, put put the power of the purse in the in the hands of the House initially. You know, to pass all spending and tax bills, and uh, you know, the executive just should not be able to spend a half a trillion or a trillion dollars uh, on student debt relief without any, you know involvement of Congress whatsoever. It's, it's just not a good way to do things, and it sets a terrible precedent. I mean, that authority could be extended to doing all kinds of other things, too. So hopefully the Supreme Court will step in at some point and, and turn this around. And there are other problems with this, this the way the administration did it. Uh, first of all, even though there is a cap on, on the debt relief, it's set way too high. And so a lot of the debt relief goes to students who are perfectly capable of paying off the debt. And, and the second thing is that ongoing payments on student debt uh, are going to run up a bill in the future. If the House goes back into Republican hands, uh, how anxious do you think the Democrats will be to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate? I don't see it <laughs> happening. I don't, I don't see it happening. I mean, I just yeah. There are a handful. There are a handful of Democrats who oppose it. It's sort of like the point I made before about the debt ceiling. It's you know whoever is in the majority, but you don't have sixty votes, you don't like the filibuster. But as soon as you're in the minority, suddenly you you know it, the filibuster is your best friend. So it's it's one of those things where you know it depends on whose ox is getting gored or which perspective you're looking at. There's all kinds of reasons to say that you don't like it, but when it push comes to shove, I think both parties realize that, I mean, the Senate has changed hands so many times, you know, just in my career, 
uh, on the Hill that I don't think either party, you know, they like to complain about it when they're in the minority, but when they get in the majority, they realize that it, it actually works to their works to their advantage. And uh, I think both parties always need to be cognizant of that fact. The current map for, for Democrats in the Senate uh, was a friendly one, uh, relatively speaking. You know, the next election in the Senate overwhelmingly favors Republicans. And I, I think that the House, which we all think is going to flip hands, just serves as a reminder that the, you know, the majority, the pendulum swings. And so I just I don't think there'll be any appetite for changing the filibuster in the Senate. Well, it looks like that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, we don't have the final election results, so we'll see if we can bring you those next week. I can't bring you Steve Kornacki at the big board. I can just bring you Steve Robinson from his <laughs> living room. <laughs> uh, all right. So that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks to Pete Davis for uh, giving us his insights on the election results and the possible effect on the Capitol Hill agenda. Troy, Steve, thanks. This is Bob Bixby. I'm your host. And tune in again next week when we'll have another edition of Facing the Future.